0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast growing industry. One of my favorite future focused sustainable investing conferences starts on March 28th. The Wall Street Green Summit has been attracting low carbon economy entrepreneurs and sustainable finance professionals for 20 years. I'm always surprised and inspired by the roundup of the best and most thought-provoking clean energy technology innovations that are featured at the summit, and it's a great opportunity to network with peers and consider investment opportunities. I'm very excited today today to have Peter Forsaro, the founder of the summit, on this program. And we're going to talk about the 21st annual Wall Street Green Summit. Again, starts on March 28th. Peter, let's talk about this year's program agenda and who's on the speaker lineup. And uh, a question that came up in our dialogue about getting ready for today's program is that are carbon markets, markets, are carbon markets dodgy? So we'll get to that question in a few minutes. Hello, Peter Fasaro, and welcome back to the Sustainable Finance Podcast.
1: Hi, Paul. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Yes, I'm very glad you could join us today. Uh, I know that the, we're, there's going to be a lot of promotion ahead of the con, of the summit going forward, and we'll be part of that. Peter, you have run the Wall Street Green Summit for 21 years now. What do you see as the biggest change over that period of time or what change is, maybe that's a better way to think of it, and what's the focus of this year's summit?
1: Well, we've always been the event where we invite practitioners, the solution providers to share their expertise and knowledge with the community. And over these 20 years, we've had 7,000 people attend the summit, both in person and virtual. And the key is that we've seen ups and downs in carbon markets for the first 10 years. There was a lot of topicality. We had expert speakers, exchanges, brokers, a whole host of people. And then when we didn't get legislation in the United States in 2010, that kind of died. So I've seen the carbon markets basically go sideways to nowhere until last March. And then I started getting the phone calls again. And I've gotten a tremendous number of inquiries and phone calls about carbon, carbon trading, carbon credits, et cetera. But I decided about six months ago, because the conference is very thematic, what major themes do we want to push for 2022 and beyond? The first is ESG investing. We think it's time for folks to focus on ESG. My contacts, mostly DC lawyers, think that we'll see SEC regulation of corporations on ESG and probably carbon within the next 18 months. It's not going to happen as fast as people think. And I used to work as a policymaker in DC. And just let me explain how it really works. When you do a notice of proposed rulemaking for a new rule, there are public hearings written comments, quite a bit of analysis done, and then you issue a final rule. This is such a contentious issue that it's going to take the next 18 months runway to get the final rule, but it's coming. So that has galvanized ESG investors. I've been getting a lot of phone calls since last September on sustainability reporting, ESG metrics, ESG scorecards, etc. So I've actually set up advisory in that area with a number of new advisories that can highlight that kind of work. Secondarily, as i mentioned, carbon calls started coming in last March. I have seen every major carbon platform be funded in the last 10 months, be it climate trade in uh, Valencia, Spain, or Moss uh, Earth in Brazil, or uh, carbon accounting such as Persephone, All of these have been funded and even more to come. So I'm seeing a lot of interest in carbon credits and a lot of confusion about carbon credits. And so thematically, the first two days of the summit are focused on ESG investing and carbon markets and credits, including nature based solutions. The last two days, we pivot more into clean energy, into climate solutions through innovation, those type of topics. So what you get is a pick and choose event where you don't have to sign up for the whole thing. Each day is only $25 and you can pick the sessions you want to look at on Zoom. But basically what I try to do is get very topical, get the best practitioners that I know And this year we've globalized it even more. We have speakers from South Africa, Namibia, Singapore, France, Israel, Brazil, not just the U.S. and Canada. So it's a much more international event. I never plan on going back to in-person because you can reach more people through media and touch more people's lives.
0: So, Peter, this is going to be a really exciting summit this year, and let's share your perspective or opinion uh, on carbon credits with our audience. First of all, are the carbon markets dodgy, as some people say? And secondly, what's the need for carbon credits? Can you explain how they're created and why they're important today?
1: Well, having worked on CDM, Clean Development Mechanism Projects under the Kyoto Protocol, having been involved in AB 32 implementation, which is the climate change law in California, and having been active in teaching people about carbon trading and finance in Mitsubishi Research Institute, in Tokyo, Swiss Finance Institute in Geneva, and all over the U.S. and Canada, this is real and material. And yes, there are going to be some bad actors and some outliers. But what you have today are two markets. You have the compliance market, which is now in 65 jurisdictions globally. That's a cap and trade market or carbon tax market. And then you have the voluntary markets. The voluntary markets have been quite small, but what has occurred there is we've seen a shift to too many credits to not enough credits. And that has had an impetus on pricing for things like nature-based solutions have tripled in value in six months. And my own opinion is because corporations globally will not be able to innovate fast enough to reduce their carbon footprint to net zero by 2030, they are going to be major buyers of credits. And because of that, you're seeing corporations line up to purchase credits, get access to credits, have options on credits, and we're seeing a market sizing of the voluntary market alone at 95 to 100 billion dollars by 2030 and it, as i mentioned just passed a billion dollars september 2021 so that's 95 to 100x increase now i'm not worried about dodgy credits greenwashing if you do these things properly by best Uh, carbon uh, financiers and project developers, you go through a process called uh, verification, validation before you even issue credits. So there's a process. Some of this can take two, two and a half years. Those that are looking at blockchain solutions for carbon tokens are trying to shortcut that. You can't really shortcut that. So all I can say is buyer beware. If you buy dodgy credits, They could have no value. And you're talking about major corporations that are going to be focused on the E of ESG. That's environment. and That's going to be in the U.S. and material on the balance sheet in 2023. So you're going to see a tremendous surge of credit buying by corporations to offset their carbon footprint. As as I've seen corporations uh, adapt to climate risk, They are doing operational efficiencies, but the innovation takes a long time, and we won't even get into net zero by 2050.
0: So, it sounds like uh, in the ramp-up to clean energy technology scaling on a global basis, uh, we're going to struggle to get to the targets for the 2015 Paris Accord Agreement, and we're also going to need things like carbon credits and a market for carbon credits as part of that process. Can you ex- give us a, just a, an ex- a brief explanation of, okay, I'm a company now and I I know that I need carbon credits in order to stay in a regulatory trajectory that makes sense for the long term. How do I actually go into the market and purchase the credits that are going to be the best for my firm? Is that, is, is that an issue or... Are they all similar in nature? How does that work?
1: No, there's there's no one carbon price. I noticed that the ICE exchange in December announced it'd be a global price for carbon. That's ridiculous. There can never be one price for carbon. Why is that? Because you're combusting fossil energy in different jurisdictions. You have different fuel mixes, different geographies, etc. So that's the first problem. I want to reiterate, there are two markets here. There is The compliance market. So, in the EU ETS, those credits are allocated by government. And the idea of allocation is you start reducing those allocations so the price goes up. The price in the EU has hit almost $100 a ton. Uh, Similarly, in California, you have your other big market, a compliance market. California adapted to climate change risk. At one time, it was the ninth largest economy in the world. And now it's the fifth largest economy because it's innovated on renewable energy, innovated on energy storage, innovated on energy efficiency. The idea behind cap and trade was not to uh, uh, reduce, uh, have noncompliance. The idea was to reduce pollution by carrot and stick. And it's been highly effective in the United States in the acid rain program. We no longer have an acid rain problem in the United States. That began in 1990. We've reduced the urban ozone problem, the brown cloud in Denver, 180 non-attainment days in LA because of markets. So that's market-based solutions based on compliance, and there are financial penalties for non-compliance. The second market, which I'm talking about, is the voluntary market. There's not enough credit generation in the compliance markets to meet, let's call it, Fortune 10,000. There's just not enough. and Therefore, there's going to be major buying of what we call carbon offsets. For example, I was a member of the Chicago Climate Exchange. I was on the Trading and Markets Committee. I have offset my carbon footprint for 40 years. I have bought credits mostly because, at that time, a lot of air travel and uh, knew how much carbon I was using, about 22, 24 metric tons a year. I've reduced that quite a bit since then. Uh, Similarly, I was on the board of Carbon Trade Exchange in Australia and London. And so those are exchange vehicles. What you're now going to see is a pivot into the voluntary markets, as well as the compliance markets. Who are the major players here are what we call the environmental brokers the Evolution Markets, the Element Markets, the TFS Energies. These are the companies that broker trade between major corporations and carbon uh, providers. This is experts. This is not something that amateurs can do. You need folks that know how to vet, validate, verify what you're buying. And particularly for corporations who are very wary of an environmental black eye, They're gonna want the highest quality credits under the most rigorous standards. And they are today, Vera and the gold standard. They do exist. There's also a task force in the UK with 250 players to try to harmonize the uh, voluntary markets. But realistically, the train has left the station. It's already started. And as I said, demand is rising. Corporations are looking at the E and ESG and this will be material on the balance sheet.
0: Great. So there are going to be a number of different ways, and in both the mandatory and voluntary markets, that companies are going to be able to acquire uh, carbon credits. Let's. You've mentioned in the discussion so far a couple of different. Uh, approaches to creating these through nature-based solutions, uh, through um, uh, biodiversity credits is another way that I've uh, he- heard about. And what what is it about carbon as a direct energy source? For example, blue carbon. What are there, I know there are various shades of carbon as we move towards uh, carbon en- as an energy source. Uh, how is all of that going to commingle with the carbon credit markets?
1: Well, the nature-based solutions are very important. If we did not have forestry and if we did not have oceans, which are both natural carbon sinks, our carbon footprint would be 52 billion tons a year. Instead it's 38 billion tons. So REDD+, avoided deforestation and reforestation, is a very important change. And that was led by California. Ironically, 10 years ago, the EU did not like tree planting. So we need to plant trees. We also need to plant trees on those forests that have been destroyed by these horrible forest fires we've seen in Australia, Siberia, California, etc. So there's a tremendous opportunity to replant trees, what I call distressed acid. The carbon's been released in the atmosphere. It's now time to put more uh, trees in the ground. So that's the first. So forestry, also protecting indigenous peoples, looking at the entire ecosystem is one. Biodiversity is a little late to the game. We, I, I'm working the gentleman in South Africa, Simon Morgan, who will be speaking from Stanford University on the first biodiversity credits in Africa. Uh, we've lost about 80 percent of rhinos, hippos, elephants, and tigers in sub-Saharan Africa and that's due to poaching. So my attitude is you need to have a price on everything uh, in natural capital. You need to have a price on water. You need to have a price on trees. You need to have a price on animals. And the only way we're going to get to preserve biodiversity is to start putting that in the pricing model. So there's one school of thought that these credits would uh, stand alone. I think that's too pure. I actually think they should be co-mingled with existing carbon projects so they'll have a higher market valuation. But biodiversity credits are coming. They're gonna be global in scale. Uh, There's a lot of new uh, players like Air Air Carbon in Singapore that are already looking at these markets. There are gonna be futures contracts and OTC contracts. So that's occurring. The blue carbon I'm referring to is actually water. It's mangrove trees, it's kelp beds, it's really using the nature of the oceans to preserve species, to replant uh, so, so-called so forests like kelp beds. Uh, that's a smaller market, <clears throat> size of maybe a billion and a half dollars by 2050. But as I said, you've got two sinks, trees and water. Mm-hmm. And we need to really start thinking uh, more ecologically, I have a couple of speakers that are going to talk about saltwater agriculture this year. Yeah. So the, I I'm you know the, what I do at my event is I destroy it every year to bring in new <laughs> topics. This, these topics weren't here last year, folks. So everything you get is brand spanking new and cutting edge because you need to use your mind to solve the problems, and these are folks that are expert in everything that I'm talking about. I, I'm not the expert in everything. I just assemble folks. And what we're up to is building the Wall Street Green Summit community. So next week, we are actually launching new technology where people can actually gather and uh, before and after the conference to talk to speakers, to talk with other folks. We'll have a similar event. It's actually in Israel in um, October, called the Climate Savers. But we think it's important now to build community, to share information and knowledge. Otherwise, if it's siloed in the corner office, we're not gonna to get to the promised land. The promised land is that climate change risk is real and material, it is evident. The better news I heard today, or read today, there are now 2,100 climate journalists around the world. That's a big deal. Uh, now, two and a half years ago, we have something in New York called Climate Week, and I bumped into one of the journalists, and he was telling me, well, we're messaging Climate Week for this week. I said, yeah, but that's not the whole year. Right so Now we have climate deaths at publications around the world. This is a big deal because that's part of the equation is the messaging. I focus on the second part of the equation, which is the solutions. Every single person at my conference is a practitioner. There are no government bureaucrats. There are people that are actually in the trenches solving these very big problems. And many years ago, when I was working on trying to get cap-and-trade legislation through at their federal level, people were telling me, well, it doesn't track election cycle. Well, you can't see the emissions. And that's true. Those things are true. But the better news out now is that there's tremendous focus on climate risk. Be it forest fires, droughts, the ocean currents uh, slowing down, Antarctica and Arct- Arctic uh, ice flow, uh, water runoff, it's the very extreme weather patterns we're seeing. All of these things were predicted. All of these things are science based. It's not science fiction. I wish it was, but there's no plan B. There's no place we can go. We can't all go to Mars, which looks like a dead planet to me anyway. We're on the blue planet. And I think we actually have the wherewithal now, this decade, to get the job done. We're starting to see scaling in clean energy, the highest number ever, $900 billion last year, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We're starting to see tremendous activity on the venture side. I saw $40 billion go into early stage, VC. I'm seeing capital flows particularly from family offices and others into new technologies. My first love is hydrogen, hydrogen economy, which I've talked about for over 15, 20 years. People are now embracing. I noticed that Argus is now going to publish hydrogen indexes, hydrogen pricing. I think it's ready for prime time. Why hydrogen? Many years ago, I worked on the Prius that was fossil based. It still had emissions. Uh, At that time, the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle cost a million dollars. Toyota got the price down to 40k five years ago. So that's 25x reduction. The only way this works in the real world is bending the cost curve, reducing it so it becomes affordable. Hydrogen emissions from fuel cells are water vapor. That's not an emission. It's a benefit. Similarly, you can use hydrogen as energy storage. So I think the hydrogen economy, which has been touted for decades, is now ready for prime time. So that's another area where I'm very engaged and we have several speakers talking about making water on the moon, so a NASA grant with uh, power to hydrogen. So the reality is there's a couple of things that are outliers and EVs still make pollution because the electricity is coming from somewhere. If you're using fossil energy and the world is still running on oil and coal and natural gas, we're still making pollution. So I think there's uh, opportunities to broaden your thinking. And for investors, it it makes the landscape a lot bigger.
0: Peter, this is all incredible information that... uh uh, you're giving our listeners to consider and, and uh, excellent reasons to participate in the summit this year. We have ab- about a minute left, so I want to get quickly your perspective on you talking about hydrogen as a as a, a key uh, energy source going forward. Um, how is the existing fossil fuel energy infrastructure? going to be used. I understand that, uh, you know, pipelines can carry hydrogen and or natural gas, or maybe they can carry them both at the same time or some kind of mixture. There's a number of different ways to look at this. So are there opportunities for the existing fossil fuel infrastructure to participate in the clean energy transition um, as as infrastructure that way as well?
1: Well, right now, we're in the beginning of the energy transition. In my opinion, only three energy companies really embrace the energy transition fully: that's Shell, Equinor in Norway, and Total in France. They see this as energy be it molecules and of of, uh, of hydrocarbons to uh, clean energy electricity. This shift is going to be multi-trillions of dollars. Energy is a six trillion-dollar business. We just touched $900 billion. So we really haven't gotten to our first trillion-dollar-a-year spend. And one thing the energy industry, I give them a lot of credit for, is they think long-term. They think in 40-year market cycles. So right now, everybody's very focused on the price of oil may hit $100 a barrel. It's immaterial to what is occurring globally. When the cost of solar power went down 95% in 10 years, that made it affordable everywhere. When wind power went down 70%, we're now seeing offshore wind in Long Island, offshore wind in Taiwan. The point being, this is a global problem which has global technology solutions.
0: Peter, where can our listeners sign up for the summit? First of all, I know you have a terrific site. Uh, I'm a media sponsor of the summit, and, and a full disclosure: I'm also the moderator of uh, session one on day one, which I'm very much looking forward to. It's the session on um, in, on uh, sustainable investment strategies, and and and. Uh, technology. So where can people learn more about your work outside of the summit as well? Uh, And we'd love to put a couple of links uh, in the um, attachments tab of this podcast program so people can access that over time. I know you have a lot of things going on. So how how can people get in touch with you?
1: Really simple. It's www.thewallstreetsummit.com. And if you want to catch me on email, just peterfusaro at gmail.com. Paul, I want to thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about the Wall Street Green Summit. It's kind of my brand. And the good news is the whole world is doing the same dance now.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Peter Fusaro, founder of the Wall Street Green Summit and founder and chairman at Global Change Associates. And to our listeners. Please join us again next week for another episode. I'm your host, Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.